1645, the English Civil War was, was raging, and I don't know tons about history or this portion of history, but uh, I learned something interesting this week. There was a, a general named Fairfax and Cromwell, and they, they began a, they, they formed a, a new army called the, the New Model Army, and there were a couple things that made this army distinct. Uh, one of them was that their service was based on, on ability rather than on position, which was kind of revolutionary. But for our point this, this morning, one of the other things that this particular army was known for was their singing. You see, many people who were in the army uh, eventually even became Puritans. Uh, they, were, they were believers in God, and they were known for, as they were marching toward a battlefield, that they would be overheard singing hymns of the faith. And the reason is because they believed that God was on their side and that they were on God's side in that battle. And in light of that, as they went out, they lifted their voice in hope that God would give them victory. Now, certainly there have been many armies who have assumed that God was on their side in history, and this illustration is not intended to uh, uphold the justice or any of that kind of stuff that's going on in that particular war, but I, I think there's something interesting to see there. How God's people viewed the fact that, that if God is on their side, that they have great hope. And the reason that I'm pointing this out is because this morning, as we come to Revelation chapter 15, we get a view into the heavenly realm where God's people are on the right side of history and are on the right side of justice. And there's no doubt because God Himself is about to bring war against the evil world that resists Him. And they are singing with joy because they know that victory is certain because of God's grace in their life and that they are with Him and none will be able to defeat Him. This is where we come to in Revelation chapter 15. This is the, the fourth cycle that we've seen in the book of Revelation. If, you're not, if you haven't been journeying with us through this, uh, this book, I'll catch you up very quickly. John, uh, uh, Jesus appears to John in chapter 1. He reveals himself as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that he is bringing all things to, to completion. And then in chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches are receiving this letter from John, encouraging them to keep trusting in uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then chapters 4 and 5, we see Jesus in glory, and that he uh, opens the scroll detailing God's plan to destroy the sinful world and to deliver his beloved people. And then that plan that was in the scroll is unveiled in these repeating cycles that are filled with symbols drawn from the Old Testament that are weaved masterfully together throughout the rest of the book in this tapestry that lays before the hearts of God's people that God is victorious over sin, Satan, and death and the corrupted evil world system that is oppressing His people. And in light of that, they can take heart. They can take heart and courage that no matter what comes against them, tempting them to reject Jesus and fall away from Him, that they can trust Him and lean into Him and keep trusting until they see His face. The first of the cycles was chapter 6 and 7 where you see seven seals that are open with these four horsemen carrying judgments of pestilence and famine. They affect a third, I'm sorry, a quarter of, of the earth. Then in verses, uh, chapters 8 through 11, we see the second cycle where there's seven trumpets warning that judgment is coming. Those judgments affect a third of the earth. Then in the third cycle, chapters 12 through 14, we get kind of a behind-the-scenes view of, of who the evil forces are. We see three beasts, the dragon and the two beasts, the, the, the beast of the sea and the land, this unholy trinity who's opposing God. And this morning we come in chapter 15 and 16 into the fourth cycle where we're going to see seven bowls. And as these bold bowls are poured out, they're going to look similar to, what, to the judgments that were seen in, in the seals and the trumpets, yet there's something that's very different. These are complete, these are universal judgments. Because one of the things we learn about these cycles is that they're intensifying as they're laid before us. 
So all of these events that are happening, as we've seen so far, began at the resurrection of Christ and will continue until the return of Christ, but they're intensifying as time goes on, and the Lord is showing this to John as the cycles intensify all the more. These bowls of wrath that are poured out are universal and complete, not just affecting a quarter or a third of the world, but the whole world. So in a unique sense, this cycle focuses on the end of history, the final climax of God's judgment. And if we're looking for kind of a summary of what 15 and 16 is all about, you might, might say it in this. The believers are to, to ready ourselves with sober hope because the wrath of God is coming soon. Ready yourself with sober hope because the wrath of God is coming soon. The way we're going to work through this text is we're going to do chapter 15. We're going to see there's seven angels and the singing saints, which sounds like an interesting band name, right? But the, the, the seven angels and the, the singing saints, chapter 15, verses, uh, chapter, verses 1 down through 8. And then we're going to see the seven bulls and the wrath of God. The seven bulls and the wrath of God. Chapter 16. Let's begin here in chapter 15, verse 1. The seven angels and the singing saints. Then I saw, this is John speaking, I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of gods in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Verse 5, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power and no one could enter the sanctuary until the plagues of the seven angels were finished. John says he receives another sign. This is the third heavenly sign. There have been lots of signs, but this is the third that's described as a heavenly sign. It's also described here as great and amazing surprising and astonishing. And the sign is that there's seven angels armed with seven plagues. And in verse 7, we see that these plagues are in seven bowls distributed to each of the, the angels. The plagues are indeed God's wrath on an unbelieving world. This wrath is going to serve as the final wave of His judgments. Notice there it says, for with them the wrath of God is finished. These plagues, I think it's important to note here, are they're going to sound familiar as we hear them poured out. And the reason is that they are very much like, they're, they're patterned after what God did to Egypt as he delivered His people from the slavery that they had there. Where God brought waves of judgment through ten plagues that came upon Egypt 
to deliver His people toward the promised land. Well, here we're going to see that the exodus, as we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, was a shadow of the greater deliverance that God is working. Here He is once again bringing plagues, not just against Egypt, but against the whole rebellious world as a means of punishing them for their rebellion and also delivering His people unto the new heaven and new earth, the promised land that awaits them. Now, I do want to point out that, that though when it says here that the wrath of God is finished, it doesn't mean that God's wrath is finished forever in the, in the idea of like annihilationism, that we see God pouring out wrath here and then it's over. We're going to see as we move on through the book of Revelation that this, is, this concludes this portion of the wrath of God on, on human history. And then God's wrath, we will see, will be poured out for eternity in the lake of fire, where his, his wrath will endure forever. But in regards to His wrath on the unbelieving world, here it will be finished. Now, along with these seven angels, you'll see that, that John notices a, a sea of glass mingled with fire. We saw this back in chapter 4 as well. Can you only imagine what that would, how mesmerizing that would be? This ocean of fiery glass. I mean, who, who knows? And do and you notice who's, who's there? Those who conquered the beast. As we've seen through the book of, of Revelation, this, this beast is speaking of this antichrist figure who leads the world in rebellion against God. And of course, 1 John tells us that there are many antichrists. And the whole aim of the, the antichrist and his system and the many antichrists is to stifle faith. To reduce people's thinking about God. To, to oppose believers from following Jesus. This is what the pressure of society and the worldly temptations and the persecution is all about. It's about killing faith in God. And here, though, we see that it's not impossible to resist. It's not impossible to make it home. Because here we have a collection of the redeemed standing before the very sanctuary of God. They have, and the word is, it shows up throughout Revelation, they have conquered. They've conquered Him. And the reason is not because of how awesome they are, but because of how awesome Jesus is. You'll remember that Jesus is the one who conquered. That He conquered sin, Satan, and death through the cross and the resurrection and now His ascension and His intercession for us and all who by faith find themselves in Him join in His victory. Faith in Him unites us to the conquering victory of Christ and here these are the conquering ones surrounding, surrounding this, this lake of burning fire that is before the sanctuary of, of God. They've persevered in faith. They've resisted the pressure to conform. Many of these certainly have even given their life for their trust in Christ. But here, they're standing. Because they're alive. Because in Christ, though you die, you will not die forever as we heard was promised about Lazarus in John chapter 11. They've been, man, they've been made to stand by the grace of God. They stand in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 12, 11 tells us, who has washed them clean of their sins. They stand justified here, ready to receive the redemption that has long been promised, that they've, they've known by faith and now are about to see by sight because the wrath of God is about to come and evil is about to be done away with. And I don't know about you, but just even hearing about that makes me want to sing, which is exactly what they're doing. You notice there that they're standing uh, beside the sea with harps of God in their hands. Again, we've, we've seen these before back in chapter 14. Are they symbolic or actual? I don't know. We'll find out someday. Will there be more instruments than just harps? I would presume the Lord knows whatever we need to worship Him perfectly there is what we will have. But what we see, the most important thing to notice, is that they are celebrating saints. 
They have a joyful response to God through song because their Lord is victorious. This is why Christians sing. We're a singing people because God has given us music as a form of expression of worship to celebrate Him. And this is what they are, they are doing. Which I think it's important to just notice a couple things. First of all, why, why are they singing? Well, as we've been talking about, they've, they've begun enjoying this deliverance, their, their, their salvation, and they're about to experience it in full measure. It is going to be completed They're going to be complete, final liberation from from all evil. They are gathering before God as the angels' bowls are being filled with judgment because the reign of evil on the earth is about to come to an end. And they love it. This is why they're singing. Now notice where they are singing. Well, again, they they are in heaven. These are believers who have died in Christ who are awaiting the completion of their salvation. And again, the picture is really interesting. That they're before this sea of glass mingled with fire outside the sanctuary. You'll notice they're not in the Holy of Holies of Heaven. This in some sense is like this tailgate in glory where they're all outside the sanctuary. They haven't yet seen the face of the Father. They are there with God because absent from the body is present with the Lord. But there's some sense in which they have not enjoyed the fullness yet because not everybody's there yet, as Hebrews chapter 11 even talks about. This is some sort of glorious celebration as, again, a glorified tailgate party where they are there rejoicing, awaiting for it all to happen. And this is the final moment before it does. These are the last seven angels with bowls full of wrath about to usher in a new heaven and a new earth where evil shall be no more. And notice what they are singing. Verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses, as we read earlier, is from Exodus chapter 15. It was the response of God's people as soon as God delivered them through the exodus and the plagues, through the Red Sea miraculously, they come out on the other side and all they can do is strike up the band. Miriam grabs her tambourines, everybody starts singing, glory to God because He delivered us. He saved us. This is what they are singing about. They have been saved and their enemies have been judged Now notice here, the song of Moses becomes the song of the Lamb. Because Jesus fulfills the salvation of which Moses and everything that he did was a shadow, right? Jesus was the Lamb whose blood was shed and placed on the doorposts of God's people who hid by faith, trusting that he would protect them from the wrath that is to come. So that that lamb that was slaughtered, the Passover lamb, is a picture which Jesus fulfills. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the, the world. Jesus is the greater Moses who led his people out of the land of slavery in a miraculous way through a splitting of a thing that was supposed to be death, but he comes through, leads them out to everlasting life toward the promised land. So the song of the lamb, if you will, is a... Uh, uh, a remix of the Song of Moses. It's the fulfilled, remixed version of that. It was a shadow. This is what it was really about. So normally remixes are not better, but this one is. And just listen to the lyrics. Did, did you catch the lyrics? Verse 3, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is very important for us. Notice here, the content of their songs is about God's character and God's saving works. The content of their songs is about God's character and His saving works. Very similar to the the psalm that I prayed uh, at the beginning of the sermon, Psalm 98. It it even 
uh, echoes what's written in there. Notice they are singing about who God is. God is king in their song. He is the almighty one who rules and reigns with unchallenged authority. He is the holy one who is set apart from all other supposed gods who we're going to see in a moment can't do anything when he sets even his angels against them. They also sing about what God does. He does, verse 3, great and amazing deeds. He has just and true ways. He has, verse 4, righteous acts. These these words are often used in the Old Testament, both in the Psalms and, and the prophets, to describe his saving work. So if we were going to look up great and amazing all the way through the Old Testament, we would be here all day long. And, and, and because it is, it's, it's words that are used to describe his, his saving grace upon his people. God does his works for the deliverance of his people and the destruction of his enemies. This is what God does, and they're singing about it. Also, they're singing about what God deserves. So they sing about who He is, what He does, and what He deserves. Verse 4, Who will not fear and glorify Your name? All nations will come and worship You. The redeemed rightly proclaim that God deserves to be feared. The right response in their song is about fear Him. Revere Him. See Him as other than you. Glorify Him. Honor Him. Make sure that your, every word that you speak, every my, everything that, that goes through your mind, every motive, that all of it should be done to make Him be seen as He truly is. He should be sought and worshipped. Nations will come and worship you. He's worthy of being enjoyed. Pursue Him, not the fleeting things of this world. This will indeed happen when Christ returns. Everyone will worship Him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. Not because there's a universal salvation, but because everybody will see God rightly. The redeemed will believe it and the rebellious will hate it, but will know it's true. All will worship God. I think it's important to notice here, twice it's mentioned, that, that the God of the Bible is not a localized tribal deity. Do you notice he is the king of the nations? All nations will come and worship him. So Christianity, if you will, the worship of Jesus as Christ and the Son of God is not, certainly not a, a Western white religion. It's certainly not just a Jewish religion. It is the religion, the right religion, the true religion, for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All nations should worship Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Also, I think it's important to, to think about how our songs that we sing here on earth should be affected and impacted and instructed by the sorts of songs that we'll be singing in glory. In a sense, the, the songs that we sing are preparation for, for, for warfare. They're intended to lift our hearts to see God for who He is, to remind us of what God has done, and to provoke us to a right response of Him. This is why we're always very careful when we select our songs as to what the lyrics say. Because the lyrics matter. Style matters. That's, that's part of God's you know, generous uh, artistic revelation in all of history. And may God give us grace as we continue to try to diversify and, and, and reflect more of that from the nations. But content of what we sing is superior. Truth matters in our singing. Because we celebrate what we trust. We celebrate what we love. We celebrate what we hope in. Just listen to the songs of the world. It's all about somebody else is going to do this or this thing's going to give me hope. But for us, we sing of where true hope comes that does not ever pass away. Well, verse 5, after this I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath, the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. 
And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues and the seven angels were finished. So notice again, they're not in the sanctuary. They're not in the Holy of Holies of heaven yet. They're outside awaiting to go in. They're there with the Lord, but they don't yet see His face as they will when all believers are are there. Again, this sanctuary is in heaven. It's the sacred dwelling place of God. And out from it march these seven angels clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes. These angels receive orders from the Lord and they even resemble Him. If you look back to chapter 1, this is how Jesus is described. It's what He's uh, revealed as, as wearing, if you will. These angels come out dressed like their captain. They're coming to execute His orders. And as the living creature gives these wrath-filled bowls, the sanctuary is filled with the smoke of God's glory, very similar to what we see in Isaiah chapter 6. I mean, what a scene. What what a scene. All the redeemed from all time, except those who are still on earth waiting by faith, singing of God's saving power, but even down here, we're singing of what's to come. Singing of of God's saving power. And then you have these special, this special forces unit of angels who come out poised, ready, to order, ready for the order to attack. And what's about to unfold will end human history as we know it. And overseeing it all is, verse 7, the God who lives forever and ever. Which I think is supposed to stand in contrast to the fleeting kings and kingdoms of this world who boast to be gods themselves in many different ways. Yet there is one who lives forever and ever, and he will not be overthrown. Those are the seven angels and the singing saints. Now we move to chapter 16, and we see the seven bulls and God's wrath. The seven bulls and God's wrath. Chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, John again speaking, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bulls of the wrath of God. God orders His and his angels to, to execute evil on the earth. As we're going to see, these, these bowls resemble the trumpets, yet they're intensified. The, the seals, again, affected a, a quarter of the earth, the trumpets a third of the earth, but now these bowls are going to affect the entire earth. So there's some discussion on this from people who take the different cycles um, as to exactly what time frame is being seen here. Some would see this as another uh, recapitulation or another, another showing of, of from resurrection to return as it being another one of those. I think that's very possible. I tend to think that this is, it is a kind of a zooming in at the very end, if you will. So each of these cycles have taken us from the resurrection to the return. I think that this is zooming in particularly on the the return portion, the end, the final judgments of God that are coming. Um, You'll notice here that these are indeed God's final judgments. 15.1 says these are the last plagues, that with them the wrath of God is finished. And then even in chapter 16.17, he's going to say it's done. There seems to be a a finality to what we see happening here in the bowls that is going to be an intensification of lots of things that have been experienced throughout human history, even with pandemics like we're, we're going through right now. Happy to talk to you about that more if you'd like to another time. I think it's also important to notice here, as I mentioned at the beginning, that the bowls echo the plagues of the Exodus. We're going to see the plagues of chapter, I'm sorry, plague 1, 6, 7, 9, and 10 alluded to. 
This is a greater exodus, and these are greater bowls of, of wrath. By the way, in case you're not familiar with the word wrath, what that is, it's God's fury. It's His anger. It's not an out-of-control rage, but it is a righteous, just, calculated, thoughtful, good anger directed at evil. Because God's good, He hates evil. Because He's good, He deals with evil. God's wrath is an expression of, of His goodness. Okay. Let's start with the bowls. Bowl number, number one. Seen in verse two. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. This bowl is similar to the sixth plague in Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 through 12, where the plague brings boils upon all the people of, of Egypt. And it is fitting here uh, that those who receive the mark of the beast, which again we said is allegiance to the world that is seen in everything they say and do, because they publicly identified with the beast and took his mark, that they will now be marked in judgment by boils and sores. Now, the question is, are these literal sores on the body, or is it describing some sort of emotional, spiritual, psychological torment due uh, to their indulgence in sin and God bringing consequences of that upon them? I'm unsure. What I am sure here is that God is indeed judging justly. I tend to think that it's probably a both and. That as things progress near the end here, that both psychological feeling, experience of, of the consequences of sin comes, but now also there is this, this sort of, of judgment that is coming in a literal physical sense as well. Again, we will, we will see, but the lesson remains clear that God sees evil and is, is judging it. I do think it's important to notice here who the judgment is not falling upon. Who the soil, the soils, well, yeah, that too, but the boils and the sores is not coming against. This is not a judgment on believers. You'll notice here that it's on those who take the mark of the beast and worship its image. This is this is similar to what we see happening during the Exodus where God judges, uh, judges Egypt yet shields Israel. So this judgment is clearly upon all those aligned with the beast. The second bowl. Verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. This, of course, reminds us of the first plague during the Exodus. Exodus chapter 7, where God turned the Nile to blood. We'll remember that God created the world and He filled it with life, including the sea. And after He did, He called it good. But because of man's sin, it has now become undone. Now, unlike the trumpet that affected a third of the sea, now the judgment is, is total. The sea, which again is in many ways a, a life-giving source of, of food and economy, has been slain. It's, it's now floating face down. Death is everywhere. It's unavoidable. The sea can no longer sustain and assist humanity. Now, is this a literal turning of the oceans into blood? Or again, is this symbolic and metaphorical? just want to be clear that if it is symbolic and metaphorical, it does not minimize what God is doing. It is just another way to describe the, 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 the overwhelming, really inexplainable terror of this judgment. Again, I, I tend to think that it's, it's maybe both in some way. We'll talk about this more in the, as we see the third bowl. The third bowl, verses 4 through 7. We, we see the third angel poured out his bowl into rivers and the springs of, the wa of water, and they became blood. Again, this echoes again the, the first 
plague and is similar to the second bowl. Just as the Egyptians had no water to drink, so here the, the world's water supply is, is pictured as being uh, un, undrinkable. Now again, is this referring to God's literally striking the earth's water supply and making it blood? That's very possible. God did it before in, with the Nile River, so we don't take that as allegorical. We take that as a true historical fact. Is that what he's doing here? Maybe. Or is this God slaying the systems of economy that, like water, give life to humanity? Which even, just think about it. Think about what's happened during Rona, right? During, the, during COVID-19, the way that, it, I mean, economies have been shut down and the way that it affects people. And that's, that's, that's nothing compared to what's happening here. We do see in Revelation 17 and 18 that part of the judgment that, is, that this is picturing, the fall of Babylon, the economy is destroyed in a way that, that affects people as, as a judgment. But again, I think there's some, in some sense, this is both literal and symbolic. How's that going to happen? I'm unsure. The Lord will make it clear. But the picture presented in judgment, notice here, has a purpose. He's very intentional about the idea of blood, which is one of the reasons I'm not wanting to shy away just from the possibility of being a a literal blood everywhere sort of thing. Verse 5, I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserved. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, the Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So while some on earth may charge God with injustice, notice here, heaven sees God's judgments as being just. They've shed the blood of God's people, so now He served them blood to drink. They've, they've sowed sorrow to God's children. You remember in, 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 in uh, Revelation chapter 6 where you have the martyrs crying out from underneath the altar, how long, O Lord, until you will avenge our blood? Crying out for justice? Well, justice is coming. This is a grim, sobering picture of God's just and appropriate judgment that is coming upon the earth. I think we also see just the the severity of sin. Thinking of turning the whole world into blood, that seems so extreme. Well, that's because we wrongly understand how severe it is to shed the blood of God's servants. We minimize its severity. More on that when we come to the end and think about how it applies. Fourth bowl, verses 8 and 9. The angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So this is, in a sense, the opposite of the ninth plague. Right there in Exodus 9, where God turned off the light and there was darkness. We'll see that in a minute. He's going to do that one too. But here, he, in some sense, intensifies the burning of the sun. Does he remove the ozone layer? There's more. I don't know how he does it, but God can do whatever he wants to do. But here we see that he intensifies this, this heat, potentially even as a foretaste of the lake of fire that, that awaits all those who do not repent. How will he do this? I don't know. But what we do need to see here is the hardness of the hearts of unbelievers in the midst of it. Rather than these cosmic, unavoidable, without excuse of not being able to see it, sorts of judgments that are coming, 
Rather than it inciting repentance, it intensifies their rebellion. Very similar to Pharaoh. You remember Pharaoh? That he hardened his heart and that God hardened his heart? How did God harden Pharaoh's heart? By showing him his glory. And the more glory that Pharaoh's wicked heart saw, the more he hated it and he hardened his own heart against God. It's the same thing that we see happening here. God is revealing his glory and his wrath coming in these bowls of judgment and people, rather than turning to God in repentance, they buck up in rebellion and say, we hate you. an important thing to consider, which again I'll mention when we conclude, is for you, believer, when God's Word confronts you, what's your response to it? When God comes and says you were wrong through His Word, through His Word coming from another believer, do you humble yourself under it? Or do you buck up against it and say, I don't like this. I disagree with that. Let's be aware of that posture that still abides in all of our sinful flesh, even as believers. It must be put to death because that is the sort of posture that's leaving many to eternal destruction. We move now in verse 10 and 11 to the fifth bowl. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Similar again to the ninth plague in Exodus 10.22, where God brought darkness, God showed in that scene, in Exodus, He was showing His supremacy, His power over the sun god of Ra, who they worshipped, that He's going to pull the plug on Him, going to turn out the lights and show, no, I'm the one true God. We also see here an allusion to the tenth plague, Exodus 12.29, where God struck down the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne even seating there as a god. Darkness, if you will, throughout the book, uh, throughout the Old Testament, is a continual symbol of, of judgment from God. You see it in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Amos 5, Joel 2, Zephaniah 1, among other places. And, and this, this spiritual darkness is likely accompanied by some sort of literal darkness that's going to produce all sorts of physical and psychological anguish of horror and dread. And compare again to the fifth trumpet where there's a similar judgment. But here the suffering is, it's intensified. So again, I think there's some sort of darkness that falls upon souls, but there's also some sort of physical darkness that God is working here. And I think it's important to notice here that the aim of this plague isn't the world generally, though they're going to feel the effects of it all, but it's, it's a direct attack against the spiritual and satanic kingdom of the beast. This throne of Satan was also mentioned in chapter 2, verse 13, with the church of Pergamum, I believe it was, who is suffering under them there where Satan's throne was. It's referring to the, 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 the world rulers who oppress God's people. Well, here in some sense... The political rulers are unable to help protect the people from God's judgment and it's bringing anguish. The anguish is coming upon them. This throne can do nothing about it. I mean, again, how will that plan out? I don't know. But even consider right now how inept every world leader is against even the coronavirus. I mean, they can't fix it. Nobody can fix it. We can certainly do our best with what we have to do, you know, give warnings and do all this kind of stuff. But the fact is, we don't know everything and we can't do anything. And this is, again, a mere shadow of what is to come. 
And again, the pressure of God's punishment is exposing the hearts of unbelievers. And here we see they are angry at God. This is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 8, where God is bringing the judgment of darkness against Israel. And it says that they were enraged and they cursed God. We see that same imagery here. Whatever God is doing in this fifth bowl, He is shutting down their world and He is pulling the plug on self-sufficiency and exposing their evil hearts. Listen to Proverbs 19.3. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Isn't that interesting? When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, he follows his sin and it destroys his life. And then they cry out, God, why'd you do this to me? (laughs) This is what's happening here. We're going to see the same thing happening in in chapter 18 when Babylon falls. God takes away the sinful delights of the world and all they can do is raise their fist at Him and say, how dare you take what we love? Because they don't love God. The sixth bowl, verse 12 The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And then a pastoral note, verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And then back to this scene of the great day of judgment, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. This imagery is drawn from all over the prophets. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 44, Jeremiah 50 and 51, Zechariah 10. Again, as you're reading this, you should be asking, where is that in the Old Testament? And it's, sometimes it's hard to say, where isn't that in the Old Testament? But this is imagery that's thick in the prophets. And, and you'll remember that just as God, and again, even back to the Exodus, right? That just as God dried up the Red Sea to draw Pharaoh's army in and to defeat them, God will dry up the Euphrates, which served as a defense for Babylon, literal, physical, the civilization of Babylon from their enemies, which is really interesting, a historical note. Uh, Cyrus, the Persian, the way that he defeated Babylon, you'll remember, is he diverted the river. And it dried up, which allowed his army to march on Babylon and to destroy it. Which certainly would have been in the minds of these these readers. And he says, well, that's but a shadow. It's but a shadow of what God will do in the end to bring down Babylon, the spiritual kingdom. Now, we're going to see this battle twice more. We're going to see it in Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. 20. So we're going to get more into this battle when we do those texts. But a couple things to note here. The first is verse 13. Do you see again the unholy trinity? The unholy trinity shows up again. The dragon and the mouth of the beast and the false prophet that out from their mouths spew this unclean, demonic influence into the world. And again, it's, they're described as, they're likened to frogs. So are there literally frogs coming? Well, God certainly, there was a plague of frogs. So maybe it has some allusion to that. But these are unclean things in Israel's mind. The picture here, I think, is that there's some sort of, the unholy trinity is working in some way to spread mass delusion around the world, which is going to be needed to rally what they're rallying them for. They are rallying them to say, we can defeat God. He has been oppressing us too long. We are done with His bold judgments upon us. Let us gather together and war against Him. Which, by the way, is the same thing that Satan did in heaven so long ago, rallying the angels who would then fall and rebel against God and be cast out in judgment, of which all of human history is proof that that was foolishness. Well, here they try and do it again with humanity, rallying the kings of the earth 
to come against God at this, this battle known as, as Armageddon. This valley of Megiddo, a plain that was often used for battles in Israel's history where Deborah won and Josiah died. It's symbolic here uh, of the combat zone between Christ and Satan. Will it be a literal physical battle on the earth? It appears that that's what's going to happen. But it's also symbolizing the greater spiritual battle that is raging here that God is bringing to a conclusion. And notice also here that it's called the great day of God the Almighty. Because on that day... The Lord of glory will be exalted in a way that is going to be undeniable as to who rules and reigns the universe. I mean, just, just notice here, by the way, the delusion that satanic influence can bring. It can lead people to think that they can rebel against God and win. That they can either come into his presence and be good enough to stand against a holy God, or they can be strong enough in their own wisdom and advancement that they don't need God and they can reject him and just take the planet. We've got it fine. Thank you very much. That is satanic delusion. Well, it comes to a culmination here in this final battle. We'll come back to the, the blessing here that Jesus promises in verse 15, but he gives this sober reminder to his people to remain spiritually vigilant. We'll mention that in just a moment. But before we do, the final bowl, bowl 7, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones about a hundred pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. All of this imagery has been seen before in our study in Revelation. Again, it's reminiscent to, to God descending on Mount Sinai with his thunder and lightning and the earth quaking. The lawgiver comes to give his word to his people there, and you cannot approach because if you do, you will die. Well, here, the lawgiver whose laws have been broken descends as it is through this bowl, and they are encountering him with whom they have to do. And his wrath here, you'll notice he says, it is done. This is why, once again, I think this is the, the conclusion. This is the return of Christ. This is what is happening when Jesus is returning. All of this stuff has been coming upon the earth, and here he comes. It is done. So as he cried out, it is finished on the cross. Now the work of redemption was done. Now he comes to take his own, to enjoy it forevermore, and to judge those who rejected him forevermore. This city that is pictured here is, is most certainly the great city of, of Babylon. It is metaphorical. It is a picture that is split into pieces. That they are, it is drinking down this undiluted wrath of God. We're going to see more of this in chapters 17 and 18, where Babylon is personified and we see the wickedness and it is judged fully and finally. Is this describing the literal removal of mountains and islands, or is this imagery communicating the downfall of evil forces, of kingdoms and kings? I think it's both. I mean, that's what's happening. Everything that's standing against God is being put down. So mountains, down. They're making way for the Lord to come. Kingdoms, fall. The picture of these hailstones being thrown down reminds us of the seventh plague again, but it's also... Uh, this, but this time it's not just in Egypt, but it's on the whole world. You'll notice here. And it also fulfills the prophecy of Ezekiel 38 of God down, throwing down judgment of hailstones on the earth. 
Are they literally 100 pounds, or is it a metaphorical way of saying that they're big? In one sense, it doesn't matter, because God is throwing down judgment upon the earth. And that's how the cycle ends. It's, it's, it's like the ultimate mic drop of God before the world saying, judgment is coming against all who rebel against me. And you will drink down to the dregs the bowls of the wrath of the Almighty Holy One whom you continue to blame for your own sin. Even as Adam did in the garden, it was the woman who you gave me. People have not changed. And in the prophet Ezekiel, God said, Do I light, delight in the death of the wicked? No, but that they would turn and live, says the Lord. Which is why God, one of the reasons God gives this warning, it's for the world to see and to hear that they might turn from their sin. And, and rather than look to heaven and say, how dare you? They would look to themselves and say, how dare I sin against my maker? Oh, how could I be forgiven? To which God says there is good news. There is good news of a Savior named Jesus who left heaven, part of the Holy Trinity, Trinity, if you will, the second person of the Trinity, who came to earth as the God-man who lived a perfect life of obedience, never rebelling, always doing good deeds, and then on the cross, dying. And there, you'll remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, says he will drink down the cup. And that's what he did on the cross. He dragged down the bowls of wrath for all who by faith would look to him that they might not have to experience the wrath and the judgments that are described here in this book, but rather that they might know the cup of blessing promised for all of those who will but hide in Christ and trust in Christ, who then went into the grave and buried their sins there and then rose from the dead victorious, who if they will look to Him, they will conquer and they will not be overcome with wrath because they will be hidden in His righteousness. This is the hope of God's people. And it could be the hope of you today. If you listen to this and you say, I know that if God were to come today, I would be judged because no matter how good I have been, I, I have sinned against a holy God. Oh, look to Jesus. He drank down the cup of wrath for you. If you will but look to Him and cry out for mercy. He loves to forgive sinners. Look to Him. Cry out. Forgive me. Now while this revelation serves as a warning to unbelievers, it's also important to note that it is aimed primarily at believers. It's written for the seven churches. It's, it's the way that God injects our faith with strengthening grace to help us to keep hoping, to keep trusting, to keep resisting, to keep leaning into and looking up to Jesus. So I'm going to conclude with four brief exhortations that I encourage you to, to talk about if your community groups are meeting online or whomever you're listening with. Talk about these four today. And remember, as you seek to apply them, this is not a, a get-it-done, get-it-together kind of exhortation, but this is a lean-into-God's-grace, knowing that He will supply help to do them sort of exhortation. The first is this. Be in awe of God's justice. Be in awe of God's justice. Everything God does is right and just. Some will say, how could God do this? But in the end, we must see that there is a great warning about being deceived by our limited ability to perceive reality. We are inclined to say, what sin could, could possibly make these judgments righteous? But what God wants us to see is rather we should be asking or saying that since these judgments are righteous, how great must my sin be? How, how blind must I be to my offense against my Maker if sin seems so small that I would say, God, how dare you? 
God is the Holy One of Heaven, and He is personally offended by our sin, and He is personally offended when people attack His people. And God's judgments are perfectly measured according to our sins, which should lead us to humility and to worship. So if you find yourself bucking against God and His justice, I encourage you to bring that to Him in confession and say, God, I must be off. Help me to see my sin as you do that would be deserving of this sort of judgment and wrath. Change the way I understand what justice even means. Because we live in a world where everybody's talking about justice. Nobody understands justice. God understands justice. That's why He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And He will repay rightly. The second exhortation is, be awake and ready. Be awake and ready. Again, that verse 15, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. The image of physical nakedness uh, is a, a symbol throughout the Old Testament of spiritual shame brought on by idolatry. The Lord's saying to His people here, there is a blessing. There are seven blessings mentioned in Revelation. This is the third one. There is a blessing for those who stay awake, stay alert, who stand clothed in the garments of Christ, who elsewhere we see there are garments that are their deeds as well. They are not justifying garments, Christ's righteousness of our justifying one, but they are proof and evidence that we are indeed in Him. So the call here is, stay awake, stay alert. Put to death anything that saps your devotion to God. I mean, and right now, in this time, this weird time, we, we are, Americans, evidently by one study, are streaming eight hours of content every day. Entertainment, shows, news, games, updates. That's not inciting us to eternal thoughtfulness. We must be very careful about the callousing effect that normal life here on the earth brings. Be awake and ready. Be in His Word. Be in prayer. Cling to Him. Thirdly, be aware of the world in you. Be aware of the world in you. It's similar to the second one, but it's a particular application. As we see what is produced in unbelievers during these plagues showing up in our lives, it, it's important for us to say, Lord, how am I like them? Because it's really easy to read that and be like, what a bunch of idiots. That's, that's the wrong reaction. The first reaction is, Lord, how am I like them? What remains in me that loves the world? What remains in me that distrusts you? What, what revolts? What is it that makes me re revolt against your reign over me? What is it, Lord, that, that if you were to say, I want you to do this, you would say, God, I don't want to. No. That's in all of us. We love our ease and our comfort and what caters to whatever we want and you've just got to know that this is not just about what's out there. Our abiding flesh needs to be put to death. What ways are you not tempted to want God's way over you? What comforts and ease and fleeting enjoyments or changes of whatever might you be pursuing at the expense of faith and devotion to God? this time has been very exposing for me in number three. May God help us. And then fourth and finally, be strengthened in hope. Be strengthened in hope. As the saints sang with hopeful hearts, so we too can take courage in these days as we await what God is about to bring to pass. So all of our songs all of our sermons, all of our scripture readings, all of the warnings that are here, they are intended by God to, to aim our affections upward to heaven. To know 
that this scene is coming to pass and these bowls will be poured out and there is a day coming when the kingdoms of this world will be toppled fully and finally. And everything that we ought to be doing now ought to be strengthening our hope in that day. That just like that army, that army that was going out to battle singing, we as the people of God marching into the world, resisting the, the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil, proclaiming the gospel of Christ, seeking to resist temptation, that we do it with a hope that is set that if we are in Christ, that we have nothing to fear. Because God, God conquered in Christ. And if we are in Him, our destiny is to be with those singing saints before the sanctuary of the Almighty God who dwells in unapproachable light. And soon we will be with Him. May God strengthen our hearts to trust that that be true. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word and we pray that You would use it to strengthen our faith. That we might delight in You and trust in You and hope in You. Oh God, would you give grace to help us to be in awe of your justice, to not question you, but to humbly trust you? Would you help us to be awake and ready, not hardened or calloused or deceived or deluded? God, would you help us to be made aware of how the world still lives in us? Oh Lord, as we seek to live by faith, it's so confusing so often. God, would you help us to be guarded against our propensity to seem what is wise in our own eyes. Oh God, we pray that you would help us to be strengthened in hope. That we would be a people who are vigilant for our souls to be built up in Christ. Strengthened in your word daily. Oh God, would you help us. Give us grace. And we pray that you would send the Lord Jesus soon and very soon. That we might see his face. In the name of Christ. Amen.